Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial United Methodist Church. Each week, we open the scriptures in faith that the timeless truth of God will guide us as we seek to follow in the steps of Jesus. An Indian parable tells the story of three blind men who came across an elephant for the very first time. One man feels its trunk and believes it is a snake. One man feels his leg and believes it is a tree trunk. The final man feels its tail and thinks it is a rope. None of them can understand what an elephant is because they only have a partial view. Their understanding does not change what the elephant is, but every day, people allow others to shape their self-identity based on a similar partial picture. In this week's message, Pastor David Cartwright encourages us to understand how God, who can see every aspect of us, knows who we are. As we go to our message today, let's open our hearts and minds to the truth that God would speak to us. As we move to our message today, I'll invite you to open your scripture to John chapter 4. The text there is uh, quite extensive, and so rather than reading it, before we begin the message, we will just kind of journey through it together. And so, if you would open your scripture there, we'll begin to walk through this and um, move toward uh, what God would say to us today. Um, The question, who am I, is a powerful question, and all of us desire a clear answer to that. Who, who am I? We, we gain our identity from uh, different places. And part of the way that we sometimes gain our identity is what others have to say about us. We become known to ourselves by how we are known to other people. And not always is that a positive thing. The world Uh, The society around us, uh, the people we know, the people who know us sometimes help to shape our identity. Sometimes that is not done in a positive fashion. Reflect for a moment with me, if you would, on this question. If there is a God, what do you think he thinks of you? I find that to be a, a good, powerful question. It's not one that I came up with. We came by that question in a study that some of us did uh, about a year or so ago called Jesus Among Secular Gods. Every week of the study we were offered a few thought-provoking questions that you could ask of someone who is a skeptic, a, a searcher, someone who is not quite a Christian yet and has questions. So think about that question. If there is a God, what do you think he thinks of you? I wonder what a woman from Samaria would have said in response to that question before she met Jesus. We're told of that woman in John chapter 4. Let's begin the journey through this uh, scripture. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus and his disciples are moving. They're in Judea, which is the southern region. They are moving toward the northern region, which is Galilee. And in verse 4, it says that he had to pass through Samaria. That statement in itself is, is interesting, that he had to pass through Samaria. 
It would be somewhat equivalent to saying that if people in Wills Point wanted to get to Mesquite, they have to pass through Kaufman County. Is that true or not? Well, it depends on how you go, right? It would naturally involve going through Kaufman County, but do you have to pass through it? It depends on how badly you want to get around it. Uh, yes, you could get from Judea to Galilee without going through Samaria if you really wanted to. So the statement that he had to pass through Samaria kind of begs the question of what the necessity was. And I've always, well, I guess I should say always, but I have long read this passage thinking that the reason Jesus needed to go through Samaria was not geographic, but it was missional. That there was something, there was a divine encounter that Jesus foresaw that would take place as he passed through Samaria. It says in verse 5, So he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. That means it was high noon. Okay, It's the heat of the day. It's about midday. It would not be a time when people are normally coming out to do those daily chores of going out to get water. You would naturally do that earlier in the morning when it's not quite so hot. So Jesus is sitting out there. It says in verse 7, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Let's park there for a moment. I don't want to stay there, but it's worth the pause. That phrase, or that statement in verse 9, that where it says in my text, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Think about those two terms, Jews and Samaritans. Do you know what those are? Those are categories. They are categories by which we divide people. And we have all kinds of categories by which we can divide people. Jews or Gentiles, male or female, this nationality versus that nationality, this race versus that race. There, is, uh, there are all kinds of ways by which we can categorize. And when we, when we categorize, we tend to divide. Very often, categories become means by which we divide people. We separate. We distance ourselves. Jews and Samaritans, historically, had not had dealings with each other. I would not say to you that there's no reason for that. Historically, if you look through the Jewish history, there are reasons for that. But think about this, that these people who traveled with Jesus, Peter, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, all these guys, have been raised up in a culture where they have been taught we don't have dealings with Samaritans. You see, they are pre-programmed to think divisively. They have been taught that if a person fits into that category, we build a wall. 
Jesus travels through Samaria because Jesus is a bridge builder. And Jesus understands that the fulfillment of his kingdom is hindered when we are trapped by categorizing people. The text says that Jesus' disciples had gone off into the nearby city to buy food. I have a picture in my mind. I love reading narratives like this. My mind just uh, has all kinds of things that comes to it. And I, I'm always cautious, if you will, to not place into the text with certainty what the text doesn't actually say. But here's what I picture. Jesus stays by the well. The, the disciples are traveling off toward the city. There's a woman coming out of the city toward the well. I would almost bet that the disciples and the woman passed by each other. And I wonder what their demeanor was. I wonder what their attitude was, what went through their minds. Did they kind of distance themselves? Oh, there's a Samaritan woman coming up the road. Don't give her the time of day. You know, we don't deal with those people. She probably passed a little by with a little distance. There are those men. They must be Jews. We don't stop and talk to people like that. You see, they had no intention of interacting with each other. Hear this, my brothers and sisters. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is too often hindered when his people are restricted by the categories that we've been handed down throughout generations. Jesus is a bridge builder. There are two bridges that he clearly builds, okay? When the woman ends up, let's read a little bit further, if you will. In verse 10, Jesus says, uh, uh, he, he's asked the woman, um, let's see, the woman, see, I forgot where I was, okay. <laughs> In verse 9, the woman says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink? I'm a Samaritan woman. And Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You see, as a male, he would not have been expected to talk with a female. So there's a bridge. As a Jew, he would not have been expected to talk with a Samaritan. There's a bridge. But he did not let the categories keep him from connecting with this woman in a meaningful way because Jesus is a bridge builder. And he offers her something that piques her curiosity. If you knew who you were talking to, You'd ask me, and I'd give you living water. In verse 11, she says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She's trapped in, in, in uh, you know, the, the physical understanding of what she sees going on. She says in verse 12, You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself, his sons and his cattle? And Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Do you remember last week when we read from John chapter 7 and what Jesus said in verses 37 and 38? This exact same thing. Anyone who thirsts, let him come to me. And the water that I give him will well up inside of him and be a fountain of living water. 
You see, he's offering her the same thing. That refreshment, that satisfaction, that can never go away. It's deep, it's satisfying. It, it will satisfy her deepest longings, and that's exactly what Jesus is getting at. He understands that this woman who has come out to the well is thirsty. And she's thirsty not only for the water that she will get out of the well that will satisfy her physical thirst, she is thirsty for something that will satisfy her deep longings of belonging, of understanding who she is to being understood as a person who is of sacred worth, but she doesn't have that. And Jesus says, I have something that will satisfy what you most long for. And after this water and the water pot is gone, you will find this deep satisfaction that will never go away. That's what he's offering her. And so she responds in verse 15. She says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. And the woman said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have said, Well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. And this you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I can't tell you how many times I've laughed out loud when I read verse 19. You say, well, what's so funny about it? That's the understatement of the year. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, yes, <laughs> and much more. There are at least a couple of ways that we should consider thinking about the woman who met Jesus that day. One of those has been traditionally taught based on the surface reading of what Jesus says. You've been married five times. You have a guy now who you're not even married to. We picture her as a moral failure, right? That's probably what you've been taught throughout the years as how you think about this woman. And I would not suggest to you that that's untrue. We, we picture her as a first century Elizabeth Taylor. And for those of you who are too young to know who Elizabeth Taylor, just ask an older person. Someone who just wants to see how many times they can be married. But there's another element that surely must be true of her story. You see, this woman is a woman who is living a life in a male-dominated social system. And there is probably a degree to which we should think about this woman as a victim. I realize in using that word that I'm using a buzzword of our society today. Please don't hear it that way. I'm not trying to tap into our, our current cultural conversations. But the fact that a woman, if circumstances did not go her way, if life simply wanted to deal her a bad hand, there's a degree to which she has nothing to do about it. And it's very possible that this woman is at a place in life where she's simply sitting back and saying, look, man, I have, maybe I haven't made the best choices in the world, but there are things that have been out of my control. 
and my life right now is in the tank and I'm not sure I can do anything about it. You see, it adds an element of how we think about this woman. Her brokenness is some, somewhat her fault, somewhat not her fault, but regardless, it impacts her deeply because how she thinks about herself is formed to a degree by how her community has thought about her. And there's no doubt in my mind that this woman in her community is seen just like Jesus described her. The woman married five times, can't get her life straight. Gee, it's just too bad for her, isn't it? Jesus starts to peel some of that back when he points out to her that he understands her situation. How many of you have questions about your life that you hope no one ever asks? I do. There are questions that I hope that people never ask about my life. The reason is because they touch on parts of my life that I would prefer not to discuss. They touch on parts of my life where maybe I didn't make a good choice. They touch on parts of my life where uh, my life was not where I know God wanted it to be. There are questions that, if, if they're asked, I'll answer them. But in my mind, I always hope that the question is never asked. Do you have questions like that? We're taught to put on a good face. We're taught to be strong. We're taught to be people who can say, you know what, I don't care what people think about me. And sure, there are those people who are wired exactly that way and they just simply don't care. But I suspect that for the majority of us, even if we say we don't care, we do. And if the opinions that we feel others have about us are not stellar, it impacts on how we think about ourselves. I think that's exactly how this woman came. She has lived with this and she's carried the burden and she comes out here and she meets this man whom she perceives to be a prophet who has made clear to her, I understand perfectly your situation in life right now. And that's why she tries to divert the conversation. Notice how slick she is at this. In verse 19, she says, Sir, I've perceived that you're a prophet. She goes on in verse 20 and says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. You see how easily she just moved it back to categories? She didn't want to talk about her life. She would rather talk more objectively. Let's, let's move it back to the Jews and Samaritans conversation. That was more comfortable for her. You people say Jerusalem. Our fathers say out here on this mountain. Categories. I love that Jesus doesn't get stuck in categories. 
He responds in verse 21. Jesus says, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when uh, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. Verse 22 is a, a straightforward statement of reality. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we do know, for salvation is of the Jews, which he ought to know, right? But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. You see, he, he's, now, don't get trapped in the categories. It's not here or there. It's not Jew or Samaritan. It's the people whose hearts really are drawn to the Lord, regardless of the category. And I believe in doing that, what he's doing is inviting her as if saying, aren't you one of these people? Aren't you one of these people whose heart is given out to the Lord? Don't you want to be a worshiper? Aren't you like that? Not trapped in a category. And I think, my friends, that her heart started to stir. Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And I think in verse 25, she must have said this with excitement. She says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. She's ready. She's ready to move beyond male or female, Jew or Gentile, Jerusalem or, or on some other mountain. She's ready to move. And she knows, yes, there is one who is coming. And just as you say, when he comes, we're going to worship him. And it's going to be awesome. Now think about the power when Jesus looks her in the eye and says, guess what? That's me. You're talking to the one for whom you've been looking. I think there is a change, a transformation that happened in this woman that is not described in this text. It does not tell us what was going on inside of her heart, but I believe that God set her heart on fire in those moments. And here's why I believe it. Let's read on a little bit. I just want you to see what the text does describe for us. After Jesus uh, says to her what he does in verse 26, uh, the, the narrative moves on. It says, at this point his disciples came and they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman and yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? Can you picture this? The, the, the disciples have been in the town. They've gotten their food probably saying the least possible to the Samaritan people around. They're coming back out to the well. As they approach, they look up, and Jesus is there, and they're saying, he's, he's talking with somebody. Is that the woman that we passed when we were on our way? It looks like her. Why is he talking to her? Why is she leaving with such haste? They don't, they, they, they'd rather not talk about it. Well, you know, it's Jesus. He's up to his old tricks. Verse 28, so the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. 
Verse 31, in the meantime, the disciples were requesting him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples, therefore, were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Think of two things here together, okay? The confusion of the disciples at what Jesus said and the fact that she left her water pot by the well. Something is going on here, friends, big time. And just for the record, I would have been as clueless as they were when Jesus says, I have food that you don't know about. What, did you hide a sandwich in your cloak? What were you talking about? You have, where did you get food? No one, no one brought you food. Where did you get food? They don't know. But Jesus is saying that my nourishment comes from doing that which the Father has sent me to do, which is to bring the reality of the kingdom into people whose hearts are burning for God. And that is exactly what has taken place, evidenced by the fact that she took off in such a hurry that she forgot to take the pot that she brought with her. Have you ever had a day in which something happened that was so urgent, so important, so big, that you dropped everything right where it was and redirected yourself. So often that's bad news. The phone rang, somebody came to the door, whatever it was. Whatever you had in your hand, you left sitting on the table or in the most unlikely spot. You came to it you know, days later and you said, why did I lay that there? And you go, oh, yes, because in that moment, something bigger happened. And whatever I had in my hand didn't matter anymore. You see, that's what happened with this woman. That water pot, that didn't matter anymore. She found something that changed her life. And she couldn't wait to go back to town to tell the people. And there is something powerful in this phrase. It's mentioned twice. He told me everything that I have done. It's in verse 29. And it shows up again in verse 39. Here's the paraphrase that I think that I would offer to you. It's as if this woman is saying, I met this man who looked so deeply into my life that he knew me intimately. He put his finger on the most painful part of who I am and yet looked at me with love and offered me inclusion and redemption. There's a line in the song that uh, the band sang for us just a few minutes ago. Who am I that the eyes that see my sin could look on me with love and watch me rise again? I think about this woman in those words. The eyes that see my sin look on me with what? With love. And watch me rise again. I believe, my friends, that this woman, that what she most yearned for 
in regard to her self-understanding was filled that day. When the Son of God looked at her and said, I understand your brokenness. I understand exactly who you are. I understand the years of the baggage that you have drug, drug around. I understand how you've been made to feel because of what your society has done to you. But what I want you to know is how God thinks of you. I had something that happened to me on the day that I graduated from seminary. As long as I have a functioning memory, I will remember this. We gathered for the graduation ceremony, and it was a large church. I don't remember what the church was, but it was a big place. The, the people who were uh, part of the congregation went to the sanctuary, the students, professors, staff, they all gathered in specified rooms around the building. And I remember walking into the room where uh, my, my student cohort was gathered along with many of the professors. And by the way, if, you, if you, many of you have been to an occasion like this, you talk about hierarchy on display. If you've been with the robes and the doctoral stripes on the robes and the tassels and the stoles and all these things that mean all these kinds of things, there were people in that place today who have more letters after their name than I have in my name. I walked into the room where, where I was gathered with my fellow students. Hadn't been in there long when my New Testament professor came flying across the room to me. He was one of my favorite professors in the four years of seminary. He was the kind of person... Other staff said this about him, and, and they said it in a loving way. They said, he knows more than any one person should know. He's a brilliant man, kind, compassionate, humble beyond measure. I, I so much enjoyed my time with him. He comes flying across the room and says, David, I want you to meet someone. And so he drags me across the room, and he had a, a friend who, had, who was visiting. It was a scholar from uh, some other nation, and, and I feel badly that I don't remember the guy's name or, or where he had come from, but it, it's kind of common that on occasions like that you have people who, you know, these visiting dignitaries and scholars, and he, he was all decked out just like the rest of the professors. And so he, he introduces uh, uh, the guy to me, and, and uh, I shake his hand, and then he has a hand on my shoulder, and he, says to my, and he says to his friend, I want you to meet my colleague, David Cartwright. And when he said that, I was absolutely overwhelmed. Colleague? You see, I thought about my New Testament professor, Dr. Wellborn, about like John the Baptist thought about the Messiah. I'm not worthy to bend down and unlace his sandal. So for him to introduce me as a colleague was 
beyond anything that I could imagine. And I have no doubt that he probably did the same thing with every one of our class. He was just that kind of gracious person. There are a lot of things about that day I'll forget, but that's not one of them. How powerful it is to hear someone else's high opinion of you. What does God think of you? I believe the woman from Samaria would have answered it differently after her encounter with Jesus. And I believe that there are people today who may struggle with that question. I would highly recommend, my brothers and sisters, that if you want to know who you are, if you want to have an answer for what God thinks of you, if you want an answer to the who am I, start with what God thinks about you. The Savior of the world says you are beautiful, you are loved, you are precious, and you are infinitely valuable in the sight of God. Who am I? Start there. I am His. Let us pray. Gracious Father, this world sometimes can be pretty rough on us. How refreshing for us to open our hearts today and hear our Lord say to us that I love you and I know your brokenness and yet you are beautiful and precious to me. God, I thank you for that. I thank you that you sent Jesus to meet a woman uh, who isn't even named in your holy text. Father, I believe that someday when your children are gathered around your throne, that we're going to be standing right beside of her and she's going to have her hands raised in the air in praise and adoration to our Lord and Savior. Father, we look forward to that day. We struggle sometimes, God, with knowing who we are. Help us to always come back to what you have said about us, that in Christ we are beautiful, and loved, precious, and valuable. We thank you for that, and we thank you that you have done it in and through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's Word. You can catch our worship services online at www.rmumc.net. May the Lord grant you the light of his truth as you journey through this day.